Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Melissa Stuttered, and I'd like to welcome you to Teferit Talk, the blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. We support this goal by interviewing new and established writers and religious and spiritual leaders. In addition to listening today, you're invited to join our online community at www.teferitjournal.com, where you can read and post writings, interact with other members, and subscribe to the journal. We'd also like to let you know that our blog talk chat room is currently open and we are accepting callers. The number is 347-857-3009. That's 347-857-3009. This number should also be visible on your computer screen at the blog talk website. Our interview tonight is with Jeffrey Davis, writing coach, Teferit fiction editor, creativity consultant, and teacher. Davis is the author of the Psychology Today blog, Tracking Wonder, and the books, The Journey from the Center to the Page, Yoga Philosophies and Practices as Muse for Authentic Writing, and City Reservoir, a collection of poems. Davis has stated, writing that reverberates with others' deep imagination strikes me as authentic. It's authentic because it comes from a source beyond the ego mind's spinning wheels. Much authentic writing then is sensuous and sensual. Verbs lick us. Images ignite our imaginations. Suggestive diction caresses us. Hi, Jeffrey. Are you there? Yes, Melissa. Can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you just fine. Of course, because you said yes, Melissa. <laughs> so how are you doing tonight? <laughs> I'm doing very well, thanks. Had a good, rich oh, day. Terrific. terrific. Um, I was wondering if you could start us off by talking about why yoga is beneficial to writing and other creative endeavors. Sure. Well, that's um, that's certainly been the question I've been living in for a little over 10 years. Um I guess the short answer I've discovered is that intentional, self-aware yoga practice, or really what I call now yoga as muse, um, it does at least two or three seminal things uh, for writers and artists and and others in creative endeavors. Um, One is it does instill a greater awareness of the mind and the imagination, emotions, um, and habits that we have. Um, it calms the sympathetic nervous system. And when it calms the sympathetic nervous system, it you know, it kind of calms down that hyper-rational, over-functioning facet of the mind that's always, you know, always spinning. Um, and when that part of the mind calms down, um, all, you know, and that, that mind is not just the doubts and fears that we have, but that mind's also... Oh, the mind that's analyzing, that's figuring out, it's critiquing. It's, you know, it's the very useful part of the mind that we, we use to survive and, and function during much of the day. But there's so much, there's so much more to the mind. And what happens with yoga when that sympathetic nervous system calms down and that um, that portion of the brain which has been identified largely in the frontal cortex um, quiets, then 
there's another part of the mind that awakens. It's that part that we often describe as intuitive, imaginative, emotional. And yoga, what's really unique about yoga um, and in some traditions of, of Buddhism is that uh, these traditions give us creative people a, a set of handy tools uh, to moderate our, our fickle mind and to navigate really what are going to be the inevitable challenges of crafting a creative life uh, and to change some of our unproductive habits. So if you really if you become adept enough uh, with a yoga practice, you can learn how to instill a more intuitive, dreamy state of mind. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of uh, a writer I, I, I work with regularly. Uh, she's a prominent fiction writer, teaches at a high-profile college, and like a lot of professor writers, you know, the job's demands, the nature of the analytical work of workshopping manuscripts kind of takes a toll on the creative mind, and it takes up a lot of space in the mind. And uh, I've offered to her um, uh, a sketch of a short flow of postures and harnessed breathing that I know will help her cultivate an intuitive, imaginative space, um, probably within about seven or so minutes of, of practice. Um, wow. <laughs> so maybe, maybe you kind of see where I'm getting. You know, we... Um, we have the minds that we do. We have the um, external circumstances in which we each live that are constantly changing and surprising us. Um, but yoga um, gives us a series of tools to uh, to alter the mind, to alter you know states of awareness, whether we're going to be analytical or imaginative or intuitive. Are we going to be focused and concentrating, you know, the, all these things that we desire as writers, um, we often just sort of wait for them to happen. You know, well, I'll just wait until I feel inspired to write. And um, I don't know about you, but if I just waited, I'd be, I, I wouldn't <laughs> write, <laughs> yeah. right. maybe do half poems a year or something. So, so that's, that's um, that's not the short answer, but maybe that's the medium answer. You know, this, this no, stuff, that's this stuff great. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. You know, when you were talking about your client, um, it made me think that it would be great if you could share with us an example of a specific exercise and how it could um, enhance writing or unleash a particular aspect of writing. And um, I bring this up because in the book, The Journey from the Center to the Page, you go, uh, you just, you have this great balance between theory and really practical, um, specific advice. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's good. I, uh, thanks. I'm glad, I'm glad that's your experience because that was my intention. Um, yeah, well, sure. I'd be glad to um, describe um, one one brief but very effective tool. The thing about these tools, though, that I want to say in advance is, you know, some people will experience immediate shifts um, rather dramatic and quickly, and then they have to kind of work on sustaining those shifts. Other people won't notice much of a difference at first. But the reason 
that they may not notice a difference at first is because um, these tools work very subtly on the mind and the unconscious. And really what um, what psychologists, cognitive psychologists today call the, ad- ad- the adaptive unconscious, which is part of the unconscious is constantly making decisions rather quickly and it's influenced even by things like our autonomic nervous system. It's influenced by our heartbeat or or our oxygenation to the brain, all these things that we're not thinking about that are part of our body's functioning. And so these tools, including the one I'm going to show you, works at the level of the autonomic nervous system, which is very subtle, and it shifts the patterns in which we uh, our respiration works. It shifts... um, it shifts, as I said, the, the oxygenation to the brain. And, and so you have to give these tools several days sometimes before you really start to observe their effects. So, um, so one tool is called alternate nostril breathing. And um, I don't know if you actually want me to lead you through it over the phone, but I can at least describe it to you. Is that what you'd like? Well, I think describing it would be sufficient, and then if if I feel like I'm not understanding it, then maybe you can see through it a little more. <laughs> okay, good. So um, I won't take you through the hand gesture because it's a little tricky to describe over the phone, but if you were just to take um, your right hand and you were to take your thumb and your index finger and you were to place your thumb on the right side of your nose and your index finger on the left side of your nose, Then you close off the right nostril with your thumb and you inhale slowly, letting the belly relax on the inhalation, only through the left nostril. And then you close the left nostril and you exhale, gently drawing the belly in on the exhalation. And then you slowly inhale through the right nostril. And then you close the right nostril and open the left and you exhale slowly through the left. And then you repeat that three times or six times or nine times. And the responses vary, and yet they're, they're very consistent, both in my own practice and with um, artists and writers with whom I work. Um, most of them will feel an instant state of calm alertness, they feel they feel alert and yet relaxed. They feel relaxed but not sleepy, drowsy. Um, right. I taught this even to some uh, to some teenagers at an academy, um, some rather skeptical teenagers uh, about a year ago, and many of them instantly uh, noticed. And, and the, that was you know one of their words. He he was uh, this boy young man was sort of surprised at how calm his adolescent mind felt and how easily he could write (laughs) afterwards. So that's just one example. Um, I practice a a certain sequence um, that I call my concentration sequence, and I practice some variation of that every morning that um, is grounded in the lower body. Um, What I, you know, sort of like the quiet part of the mind is down in the legs and feet. <laughs> if you if you really understand that the mind is you know kind of moves throughout the whole body, and that's kind of the quiet part of the 
of the mind, the lower body. And so I go through a sequence. It probably only takes eight to ten minutes every morning that helps me focus. Um, Twelve years ago, I could I could barely um, read uh, the words of some of the books of literature I was to to be teaching because my mind was was really such a mess. And uh, so I've worked long and hard every day on um, instilling concentration. And uh, I can say after a dozen years, it, it's worked. <laughs> wow, that's great. <laughs> Um, I'm wondering, um, from hearing you talk about that, clearly the um, yoga practice has enhanced your writing practice and the way you write. Um, have you noticed that it's also changed the writing itself? Has it changed uh, the quality of writing? The quality or just what you're writing about, the subject matter. Just Have you noticed differences in your actual writing since you began the yoga yes. practice? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of hard. Of course, these cause and effect things are, are really tricky, but absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed um, several years ago there was a different quality of um, verve, of texture, and mm-hmm. almost almost, uh, almost manic imagination the first years. Wow. So, um, really, my... my uh, mind became sort of a metaphor machine and I I couldn't stop the metaphors. I'm sure there's some sort of psychological diagnosis for the mania I was experiencing, but I was loving it. And, um, but I've sort of, yeah. So I've, I've tempered it, but, um, you know, what's happened, Melissa, that I didn't expect is, um, you know, within the first year of, of practicing regularly, I did um, notice my concentration coming back really within a matter of a couple of months, and then my imagination was on fire. But um, what I didn't know would happen is that, um, you know, all my emotional armor of, of at the time being a 31-year-old um, overly intellectual man uh, just kind of broke open and so I spent the first year or two uh, crying, you know, and uh, wow. um, because I, you know, it just was pretty closed off emotionally. So what does this mean for a writer? Does this mean I was just writing then a bunch of emotional uh, dreck on the page? Um, <laughs> no, not, at least not publicly. Um, what it's meant, <laughs> what it's meant is that, um, you know. I need I need to feel emotionally connected to what I'm writing, and um, so I do now. And and when I'm not, I can tell when it when when my language is flat or when my um, writing spirit, whatever you want to call it, is is kind of flat. And um, I know ways to, you know, I have to go to my I have to go move my body <laughs> to uh, to start feeling again. I mean, after all, feeling literally is a tactile sense. And um, emotions for me, are, of course, are very physical. And um, if I'm writing a short story, um, you know, say about like uh, like Walter Osterhout, you know, in the short story Nail on the Head, um, about a widowed carpenter, um, I know next to nothing about carpentry and um and I don't know anything firsthand about real grief 
and yet I had to find ways to really feel what grief and loss, I, you know, I've experienced loss in different ways, so I had to really tap into deeply feelings of, of real loss and grief, um, you know, to the point as I'm writing, I'm feeling, you know, uh, knots in my throat. And I don't think I had that emotional range uh, before my yoga practice. Uh, I think it was still... Um, overly intellectual sort of uh, experimental in my writing um, before them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, actually I see that from your two collections of poems. The the first collection right. was wonderful, but I can see how it was more intellectual. And then the, the second collection, the manuscript, has that combination where it's still got the intellectuality, but it's got the emotion that you're talking about that's coming through now. Um, interesting. Um, yeah, okay, I'm, so, uh, so. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying I, I'm glad you saw that because <laughs> I. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know what it was until I heard what you just said, but <laughs> now I understand it. Um, okay, one last thing about the technical aspects of the practice. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the four preparations, and especially the core question: What am I writing for? That's the heart of the yoga. Uh, for writing practice? Yeah. Um, well, the four preparations, um, which are really outlined the first four chapters of the book, um, those came from me reflecting upon my own uh, obstacles, I guess you'd say, mm-hmm. and then and then as I started to share with other writers and lead workshops, you know, and teaching writers what I was experiencing, um, engaging their responses, you know, I kind of discovered, um, lo and behold, most writers and artists share the same categories of obstacles. Um, and these four preparations, in a way, respond to those big four categories of obstacles, um, which might be loosely defined as one, lack of motivation and purpose, um, two, uh, lack of time, three, lack of uh, persistence and perseverance, and four, lack of concentration. And so the four preparations respond to each of those obstacles. Um, One is um, put on the robe and write with intention, and two is show up and shape time. Three is stoke the creative or the writer's fire. And four is ride the wave of concentration. And uh, so the the first one is, yes, it's to put on the robe and, and write with intention. And, and put on the robe is, is an image um, that was taught to me when I was a resident um, at the Zen Mountain Monastery in upstate New York. Um, and... Uh, one morning during a Dharma talk, a, a, a monk raised the question of all the things you could do with your morning, why put on the robe? <laughs> and you have so many options, you know, why put on the robe and sit and mm-hmm. just breathe, your breath? And so it's a very similar question that I think uh, we writers mind ourselves in, which is all all the things you could do with your life and with your day and with your morning. um, Why put on the robe and write, um, basically? But I 
I inverted the question. I, I switched the question away from why am I writing to what am I writing for? Um, why am I writing can put you sort of on the defensive. Like, right. why aren't you? Yeah, right. Why aren't you out making furniture, or you know, uh, <laughs> why aren't you out making money somewhere, or you know, uh, you know, feeding uh, feeding the poor, you know, something like that. Uh, so, it's not why am I writing, but what am I writing for? And that question just sort of came to me one morning um, while I was exploring these connections and trying to feel my own sense of purpose and trying to remember um, how I got in this endeavor in the first place and, and, and for me now at this point in my life, what is this writing for? And so I center myself um, with a few uh, harnessed breathing exercises every morning. Um, I connect um, with a certain part of my body, which is usually my belly and my chest space. And uh, and I ask that question, what am I writing for? And these are ways to get me out of my intellectual, analytical mind. These are intuitive ways to open up another part of my writer's mind. And uh, so the responses might be just a physical sensation of you know how I want to be um, in this body and in this world as a writer. Uh, or there might be an image, it might be a word, a phrase. Regardless, uh, it, it always puts me uh, in touch with something that matters as a writer. It doesn't have to be big and lofty. Um, it just matters to me. And this is one of the first things... Um, that I guide um, writers and artists in, into practicing. Um, it's it's a beautiful way uh, to frame your writing practice too. And you know, if you were to do nothing else except sit um, at your desk or wherever it is you write and just breathe in and out three times, and then just listen with your deepest ear to that question: What am I writing for? You might you might experience a little shift. You may not get any answer, and that's okay. Um, you just live in that question uh, for a few weeks. What am I writing for? And you see what happens. Okay, great. And I, one of the things that's so compelling to me is that you recommend doing that, and you do that every day, every time you write, and it becomes a practice. Um, that part of the writing itself. So um, I think it's easy to lose sight. <laughs> and that sort of brings you back. So <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, okay. Oh, go ahead. No, it does. You're right. It does bring you back. I, I'm sorry I interrupted. It does bring you back uh, to what matters. And, and, the, and the practice is essential um, as, as, as writers. Maybe it's not every day for you, but it's, you know, our ideas, those little subtle images, the little voices, the little stories—they need—they uh, need watering regularly. <laughs> they need to be paid attention to uh, regularly. Right. Okay, great. Um, I wanted to ask you because you're the ferret fiction editor. I'm sure many of the listeners would like to know what you look for when selecting manuscripts for the journal. And um, I was wondering if you would mind telling us a little bit about that process and some of your specific criteria. Sure, sure. I'd, I'd love to. Um, 
you know, as as an editor, and, and similarly as um, as an editor and, and coach for a variety of writers around the country, I'm often, you know, I'm often in this role thinking about readers ultimately and what's their experience going to be. Um, so specifically, you know, I'd, I'd say one of the first qualities I listen for is is just some confident authority. You know, there's something in the command of syntax and story that that can signal to me from the first sentence that I and my readers would be in good hands with mm-hmm. this storyteller, with this narrator. Um, so. So that's and, and I can usually hear it in the first few sentences. Um and the second that's related is a is a distinct voice in fiction, especially if the story's written in first person. Uh I want to hear a voice that's a little larger than life or or who has a unique slant on the world or on experience. You know, something that I'm not likely to encounter in everyday life. <laughs> it's fiction after all. And right. <laughs> so I want that voice you know, so I want it to stand out if it's written in, in first person. Um, it shouldn't be contrived, but it, it, I want it to be distinct. And if it's written in third person, then I still want the narrator's voice to be distinct in some ways. Um, the third, which is probably related, also has to do with, with character. Um, I think most readers of fiction relish reading fiction because they're drawn into a unique subjective point of view or imagined experience and i have to tell you that my taste and character are are with the uh the sort of ignoble and the imperfect and the flawed and the the vain and the presumptuous and the prejudiced uh and uh so i'm interested in those 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 flawed characters in some ways it's not to say that every you know story that i would accept needs to have a flawed character, but those are the ones I'm interested in. And um, that reminds me of just a, a brief uh, story from Zen. Could I, could I tell that in relation to this? Oh, please do. It's because um, I think it's, it's kind of relevant to our discussion, particularly uh, with Teferit. Um, when I was a, a student at the at the Zen monastery. I was flipping through some books at the li- in their library, and I came across the story I've never forget- forgotten, where um, a Zen monk apparently crept out of the monastery almost every night one week, and and would hang hang out in the bars and the brothels, <laughs> and and finally. Uh, you know, his uh, fellow monks found out, and they said, what are you doing in the bars and brothels? You're disgracing us. You're not a good monk. And he said, well, you know, it's it's easy to practice Zen in the monastery among your fellow monks with your scriptures and structures and bells and drums, but it's another thing to practice in town at night among the people in bars and brothels. So, you know, so I say this because... Um, Specifically to the listeners who are thinking about submitting to Teferit, people often think that because we're a journal of spiritual literature, uh, that we're not looking for you know real literature that engages the world. And so I'm very interested in, in again in characters who are flawed, the underdogs and the the spiritually unfit who might have one redeeming moment, you know, in in the span of a short story. Um, 
So the fourth has to do with um, maybe what I'd say is story and consequence. Mm-hmm. Something needs to happen. And in a short story, things need to be happening, um, you know, almost every page. So uh, I'm I'm less interested in uh, meditations disguised as short stories or in long interior monologues um, that, you know, are couched as a short story. And, you know, if you think about consequence, existentially and spiritually, that's karma and spirituality have to do with making decisions, right? So mm-hmm. um, so as a fiction editor, I'm curious about stories. I'm, I'm curious about questions in stories like, you know, what happens when we make a bad decision? What happens when despite our good intentions we still screw up? Or what happens when we make a good decision that goes wrong? You know, those are questions about the human experience that I think the best best fiction can play out and explore. And that's all about karma too, uh, in our in our lives. So, um so, you know, I just say if if there are writers listening who say, Oh gosh, you know, I always had difficulty with story and plot, uh then I say put your character in a precarious situation with another character who wants something very different from your main character and have have your character make a, a bad decision and see what happens and imagine the possibilities and let your character get in trouble. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, so story and consequence. Uh, and maybe two, maybe, okay, is this good? Is that enough? But I, I've got a couple of more that I think are important. Oh, you, no, go on. This is just fabulous. It's way better than okay. I expected. <laughs> Well, there's something else which is related. Has to, it has to do with movement? Um, I learned uh, I learned a practice from another editor years ago who learned this practice from Ezra Pound, no less. And when when Pound would edit short stories, supposedly he'd read the first paragraph of the short story, and if the language, craft, and story merited reading more, he'd leap to the last paragraph. And if there was some connection between the first paragraph and the last paragraph, some progression, however minute, then he then he'd bother to read the middle. Okay, so uh-huh. I've been I've been known I've been known to read this way too. But um, with Teferet, uh with the stories that are sent to me, I I usually do go ahead and uh, read from beginning to end. But I'm then I go back and reread if it's really taken me in. Then I go back and I look somewhat at structure and movement. I look at beginning and middle and end. And um, those exceptional stories have some sense of architecture. And, and I think those are well worth the time of Teferit readers. Um, and then probably uh, surprise. I'm looking for surprise. Uh, I, I don't want it. I'm, I'm a, a very annoying uh, person to say to watch an episode of Law and Order with because I'm always trying to predict what's going to happen every scene uh, and I think I read I think I read stories this way too sometimes um and I don't want to be predict I don't want to predict what's going to happen I want to be delighted or terrified or surprised in some ways um and and for for Teferet I I do think yes that something in the story needs to offer either some re- some small light of redemption or some indirect insight into the complex nature of of being human and 
seeking peace in this complicated world. But it, I, I say that very guardedly because I, um, I'm not inviting um, lessons lessons at the end of the short stories or or Why? grand epistles. Maybe need of an ending or something. Right, right. <laughs> okay. So I think, well, that was a fabulous answer. <laughs> good, uh, good. A lot of really important clarifications and things there. So um, I'm going to go ahead and try to let a caller come through. Um, it doesn't always work, but I can see that someone's there, so we're going to give this a shot. Um, caller? Good. Hello, are you there? Okay, I don't know why that didn't work. It happened last time too. Well, um, we'll we'll wait and see if they call back. Um, and in the meantime, I wanted to go ahead and let the listeners hear a little bit of your own writing. And I wanted to see if you could read the first two pages of Swallow Cones and uh, maybe sure. provide a brief summary of the story as well. So you won't be reading the whole thing. Sure, sure. Oh, um, yeah, the, the uh, very first two sh- uh, pages, the first koan, yeah. basically. So it would okay. be 176 and 178. Okay. Co- co- okay. Yeah. Uh, so Swallow Cons is a it's a short story I wrote several years ago. Uh, it's published in the anthology "You Are Not Here" and other works of Buddhist fiction um, that Keith Costick edited. And uh, so this short story is is set in Nebraska, in a small town. Uh, the main character is his name is Arthur. He's an artist, and as the story opens, you learn that he's been obsessed uh, for a couple of weeks with barn swallows, as, as you'll find out. And he, he doesn't really know why, but you know, like writer artist, he follows his obsession, and you find out that his wife left him um, about a year before the story opens, and he's he tries throughout the story to. <coughs> continue practice, practicing zazen or zen meditation with little luck um, because his inner life's in such ter- turmoil. Uh, but gradually, by following his obsession with swallows, he gets gently entangled with, uh, with another woman, and they do their dance, and the story sort of alternates between scenes related to swallows and scenes related to this unfolding relationship. Um, so, um, so swallow koans. And uh, there's an inscription, there's a description of a print that Arthur's looking at. Barn Swallow, Horundo Americana, male, one, female, two, number 35, drawn from nature by J.J. Audubon, E-R-S-E-L-S, engraved, printed, and colored by R. Havel, 1836. Drawn from nature? How many birds had Audubon killed for that drawing, Arthur wondered, as he stood sketch pad in hand in Nebraska's Sagittaw Museum of Art. How does it feel to ensnare a bird, hold its tiny body with one hand, and with the other snap its neck? Arthur scratched the tufts of his wavy black hair. He was obsessed, no doubt about it. Since a pair of swallows began nesting in the barn on the farm he'd rented alone for the past year, Arthur couldn't close his eyes without swallows circling his skull. The obsession was a welcome diversion, though. Twelve months ago, his wife had left him. 
Cloistered in the farmhouse, Arthur feared he'd become a topic of conversation among the gossipers at Garland's depot. The hotshot native son, the successful painter, the Zen Buddhist, whatever that might mean. He hoped they still thought of him as one of their own. But since last winter, his only excursions beyond his house had been the weekly 90-minute drive to the museum, where he would stare for hours at the canvases the way he gazed as a boy at the stained-glass windows of the First Nebraska Baptist Church. Arthur's worn, nimble hands tried unsuccessfully to capture, in charcoal and corrugated paper, this was unsettled piece. Her nest was gray and daubed with hints of cedar brown. Straw-like lines straggled from the nest bottom as if the bird's mud house had grown whiskers, the raggedy kind he'd sported the summer he met Andy. The nest reminded Arthur of the open-roofed eco-home they'd dreamed of building into the side of the hill, where for six years they'd lived together. That particular dream lasted only a few months before Andy let her desires light on something else. Andy. A woman whose high spiritual aspirations could throw any man off balance. Hi, I'm Andy. I'm a shaman, she announced when Arthur first met her while hiking alone on the High Plains Trail. She was on her knees, digging up burdock root with a trowel. Burdock's great for soul retrieval rituals, she told him, a little out of breath. Arthur smiled. He hoped not patronizingly. It's not every day you find a fresh-eyed woman in eastern Nebraska calling herself a shaman and wearing a trowel holster. And she was beautiful. Twenty-eight years young, she told him, with enormous blue eyes and unbridled spirit, and what he knew within minutes was an innocent but profound drive to be extraordinary. Forty years old then, Arthur found her irresistible. By the end of the next autumn, they were married. When Arthur's pencil began to move again, his breathing relaxed. The swallow peeked over the nest edge, her rust-colored head with its iridescent blue mask peering back to admire the sleek, midnight blue strokes composing her smooth body and elegantly forked tail. She appeared at home, completely at ease. Another swallow was visible below her, his blue-black head pointing in the opposite direction. Fool, Arthur wanted to say, watch out. <laughs> okay, thank you. That was great. Um, okay. Well, I wanted to say that your writing is such a perfect example of what you teach. And um, in the story in particular, I noticed the parallelism between the Coens and paintings and Arthur and the Birds. And the technique is so subtle and organic. Um, I really hesitate to even call it metaphor or symbolism, but it demonstrates your point from the journey from the center to the page about how authentic metaphor not used as artifice can enhance rather than cloud understanding. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about authentic versus artificial metaphor and how a writer can know when they've tapped into something authentic as you did with the story. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow, that's <laughs> It's a lot, nice, I know. Great, nice segue in question. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I um, I think this is a really important subject, and I, I would say the the best way for really the best route for a writer of, of fiction, particularly, to go is to <clears throat> really immerse himself or herself in the main character's point of view and subjective reality. And that means really trying to walk as that character. Um, And this is in part why 
you know, going back to the yoga practice helps me so much as a fiction writer because I literally am moving, trying to feel that character's body and, and what what life is like from that character's physical point of view. So if you think about it, um, uh, you know, every short story is a little world told from a certain point of view. So all frames of reference, all frames of comparisons will stem from that subjective point of view. So if I were writing a short story from the point of view of an accountant, uh, that accountant is <laughs> going to make a lot of comparisons to the bottom line and to balance sheets and, and things of that nature, right? And um, so, um, but if it's an accountant living in New York City and suddenly the narrator, let's say it's told from third-person limited point of view, and suddenly the narrator makes some random metaphorical comparison um, to the way that uh, streams run in the woods. And, and those images bear no relationship to the eight pages of the short story then that's something I would say is inorganic as a metaphor. Um, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the subjective schema of the uh, short story's world. Um, and so what happens is when you immerse yourself in that subjective point of view, the comparisons will arise naturally. You know, while you're writing, you'll, you know, and you'll feel it. You'll feel like, oh, that was. You know, that's that's the metaphor, that's the comparison that that's going to work here. Um, and you'll feel when it's not right. It'll feel forced. It'll feel like um, trying to you know you know stick a happy birthday sticker on a gift and just kind of slap it on just because you know it's a birthday present. <laughs> you know, it's not really an organic. Um, <laughs> uh, part of the package, so to speak. I don't know okay. if that was a good or not. <laughs> no, I totally understand what you're saying. It's like um, the the difference between um, a metaphor that connects to the world of the story or just a cliched metaphor that just, you know, comes up because it's something maybe that is in the context of um, general culture or whatever. Uh, yeah, of general culture. And it, and it might even be um, coming out of the writer's framework instead of the character's framework. Oh, good you know, point. Instead of the imagined world's framework, too. Right. Okay, that's a great point. Um, yeah. I, one of the things I love about the story in the end, um, Rosemary asks Arthur if he's thought about doing more self-portraits, and he responds by saying that he's beginning to think that that's all he's doing now by painting the birds. And it's such a wonderful comment on how everything we do is, in essence, a self-portrait, even if the subject matter is seemingly separate from ourselves. And um, I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more, especially as it pertains to your own writing. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, yeah. You know, I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about that little part, but it's actually really essential to the story. <laughs> and it, it's essential to um, to my view of, of what writing is. Um, so I've never, um, even when I was in my early 20s and 
taken myself a bit too seriously as a writer. Um, I even then I I wasn't I didn't lean toward the idea of writing a self-expression. Um, that just didn't resonate to me. I did I didn't want to write to express myself. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, there are other phrases that resonate with me um, in my writing. Um, self-exploration and mm-hmm. self-expansion. And, and self-expansion. And um, so, you know, from my point of view, the self is malleable. There is some sort of steady self that I'm, I'm finally, after 45 years, really starting to connect with and, and understand. Um, and, and and then there are all these other um, elements of the self um, that are parts of our personality. Um, maybe I could use a good metaphor, um, like a pantheon. Let's say there's a, you know, a pantheon is where there are multiple gods and goddesses, and they're all expressing all these different you know, parts of really of human drama and of human emotional drama. Um, if you were to think of yourself as a pantheon, then you'd understand just how <laughs> complex yourself is, right? Instead of right. you know pretending that you're, you're right. So instead of pretending that you're just one thing, um, and uh, so so yes. A, uh, a short story uh, is in many ways for me an exploration of myself or myself. Um, it's not always deliberately so, but it's also an expansion of the self. And maybe two short stories would really illustrate the contrast. Um, uh, swallow, swallow koans, um, it, it definitely has... Um, some closer autobiographical references um, than most of than than most of the short stories I write now, um, but you know all of those characters in there were different kind of explorations of myself in some ways. Rosemary, Arthur, Andy um, were all kind of like different facets of my myself, you could say, in, in different ways, mm-hmm. um, and. With Nail on the Head and some of these other short stories I'm writing um, from first-person point of view, where I, my um, personality, my my biographical self that you know is Jeffrey Davis, who has nothing in common um, with a, a, a widowed carpenter or um, uh, a woman who's discovered online dating and is you know running around <laughs> trying to get. Eight says she can in eight days. Um, you know, I don't have anything in common uh, biographically with these characters. Um, and yet there are parts of my personality that I can also explore. Um, you know, I can I can explore the curmudgeonly, cranky uh, self in, in Walter Osterhout. Or, you know, I can explore other facets of the self. Um, it's not always conscious. It's not a conscious endeavor usually with my fiction, to say I'm going to explore this part of myself. Rather, it's a conscious endeavor to say I, I just want to explore this character's reality and what is that life like. Um, you know, I overheard 
a conversation in the waiting room of uh, the family clinic where we go. And it was just myself and this woman on a cell phone. And I got to hear her half of this conversation that at first I was annoyed and then I realized I had something really good and I pulled out my notebook and <laughs> pretended I was uh, uh, making my grocery list and <laughs> I was really quoting her because I thought, oh my God, I finally have the voice of this, uh, uh, of this other voice that's been running around in my head. And so I thought, okay, what would it be like to be a woman this age in these circumstances who does discover online dating what what is that reality like and and um and what is that world like and so i immerse myself in that and uh, i have to say that's a fabulous story eight men seven days two breasts <laughs> um, <laughs> and i know you're still kind of finishing it do you know yet where where you'll be publishing it or you know so people can look no. out for it when it comes out no. Uh, no, no. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. I thought I'd finished it, then I unraveled it, and uh, so uh, I'm very excited about that short story, though. I'm excited well, about these series short stories where um, I'm really assuming different first-person um, points of view, all roughly based on the area where I live in upstate New York in a little farming hamlet, and... Um, they're just such a rich variety of characters here that um, that I love, and they're also quirky and, and challenging to love in person. But you know, in fiction, I can love them. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. And when you um, finish that story and decide to publish it and everything, you should post on um, the Teferit blog um, where it's being published because um, people just really need to read that story. It's so funny. <laughs> I will. I'll definitely post it. Oh, terrific. Okay, well, I want to make sure that we have time to hear a little bit of your poetry, too. And um, I just realized that um, both the story and the poem are about, you know, have birds as subject matter. (laughs) I didn't do that intentionally, but if you could read Heron, that would be great. (laughs) Sure, sure. That's that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, Good, good. Um, Heron, in... I won't set it up. I'll just read it. Okay, great. Heron. Heron. Weightless stone with wings here on water, here on the brink of day, as the sky's third eye winks behind orange clouds. In the wish of dawn, in the wish of water, find a fish that calls you and take in your beak and down your long throat, these aches of needy company, these tugs from insistent voices, and lift me with you, weightless limb with wings, that we may blend in among the willow and early light the hue of blue sibilance, steady and still. Here on the limb, our wings and head fold in, our form a long closed eyelid, The quiet confidence of being alone waves in our wake. Here in pale light, here on water, here on air, heron. Oh, that was lovely. Thank you. Um, The reading was wonderful, and I'm not sure 
if people necessarily picked up on things that um, are visible on the page, but um, one of the things is the repetition of the phrase here on, and um, which sort of gains momentum in the last stanza and then gradually turns into heron. And um, it made me think about um, your ideas about allowing the logic of sound to create its own meaning in the poem and um, the idea of allowing oneself to follow the intuitive logic of language and sounds and syntax. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Oh, God, yeah. Um, I could talk for an hour about that. I love, uh, question. I, I love trying to explain something as ephemeral as, as following the logic of sounds and so forth. So, yeah, um, it's really, um, I would say, as from early on, uh, you can he- you can hear some of this in um, my poems in City Reservoir. Um, but early on, as a poet, I've I've been drawn as much, if not more, to sounds in language than um, semantics. And um, it, it has something to do with um, my sense still that there is um, uh, something. I don't know, sacred, spellbinding in following the sounds of language. I mean, what is a spell but the right combination of words to alter awareness and the, or the right combination of letters to, you know, the words properly spelled? So um, I, uh, I write this way often in both poetry, fiction, sometimes in nonfiction, but it often gets me in trouble in nonfiction, but... <laughs> Definitely in poetry and fiction. Um, I um, I usually write really not knowing where I'm going when I'm drafting. Um, I'm listening, and I'm listening where to go next. And um, I lay out, you know, some words. Some words unfold um, from from an image or an impulse or a phrase um, or a character's voice in fiction. And and I'm listening. I'm listening to the way the sound of one word is going to suggest another. Um, so this poem is a good example. I don't want to analyze my own poem. That would be obnoxious. But um, <laughs> there, there, there is a lot of internal rhyme and and uh, there is a lot of sound quality in this poem. Uh, and it's the sound that um, almost incantory... Uh, rhythm, especially of poems that draw me in um, as much as, quote, what they're supposed to mean. Um, one of my favorite um, poets and, and friends whom Teferet has actually um, published recently is Kazem Ali. And uh, Kazem is such a sweet spirit, and he's he's so highly tuned um, to the illogic of, of sounds. And uh, so I really admire poets who who follow that. Um, and, you know, even Wallace Stevens was always playing um, with the sort of incantory uh, rhythms of, of of poetic lines. And um, so so I hope that answered... I hope that answered your question, but, you know, just about process, I would say... Um, you know, and I've done this in my workshops before. I've stopped people in the middle of what they're writing, and it'll annoy them at first, but I'm trying to train their ear, and I'll say, stop and listen 
to the last noun noun that you wrote and close your eyes and repeat that noun over and over and over again like a, a mantra until you start hearing other words suggested uh, by similar sounds um, and sound qualities. They don't have to rhyme. They just might sound similar. And uh, and weave in one of those words in, in your next line or your next sentence. And uh, it's just a way to tune people in to the peripheries of their imagination. Okay, great. And I think also with your poem, it um it's in some ways a more fundamental way to connect to the subject in addition to the logical way that <laughs> that's already happening. So, um, but hey, I'm going to try one more time to take a caller um, since we're almost out of time and just let someone ask a question. Um, but, again, I'm not sure if it's going to work, so let's <laughs> give this a shot. Okay. Caller, are you there? Hello? Hello? Okay, I don't want to spend any more time on that. Um, okay, so one last question. Um, I know you're the author of the Psychology Today blog, Tracking Wonder, and I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about the importance of wonder for our writing in our lives and specifically how we can cultivate wonder as adults. Oh, boy. Okay. I shouldn't uh, have asked that at the end, should I? <laughs> <laughs> we could spend an hour on this one. Um, okay, well... Um, I'll just say, why is wonder so important to writers? Well, it's where imagination begins, frankly. It's, I mean, wonder is that capacity to be open and to be spellbound by the smallest things, such as the sounds of words or the, the blue-gray loom of a November sky at dusk. And it's, it's that non-sophisticated openness is, is where stories and poems and art and design and world-changing projects often begin. Um, it seems as if every AWP Chronicle that's issue has come out recently has a writer who expresses something similar. You know, the uh, former poet laureate Ted Kuzer says basically the same thing, and Pam Houston several months ago said basically that all writing begins with the amazement at small things. Um, and so Wonder also puts us in a space of not knowing, um, and it puts us in questions more than answers, and I think it's that not knowing that leads many of us to write in the first place. We write stories because we have questions. We write poems because we have questions. Um, so, um, and it also opens us up uh, to, to that space of stillness. It leads to deep connection, absorbing another person, which leads to compassion. And... Um, we could talk also about why compassion is necessary, but uh, I think some of the um, the best novelists and poets, the Faulkners, the King Solvers, Ted Hughes, and several lesser knowns, um, can embody the voices and figures of of the ten thousand things of the animals and, and human beings um, that fill our planet. So how can we cultivate it as uh, as adults? Well, you could read my blog at psychologytoday.com. Um, yeah. And you can, uh, you know, it's really, because it's hard for me to summarize really quickly how you could cultivate it. Well, and yeah, it because as, I asked you at the end and we just don't have time, but definitely I yeah. think uh, that we should point people to that blog because it, it, almost every um, entry talks about that. <laughs> It does. It's, it specifically is addressing adults, 
and you know i'm I'm wanting to reclaim wonder for adults and and uh you know it's not just children and, and babies who experience wonder. we adults experience it at a whole other level so um that's my that's my wonder spiel um I'm so obsessed okay. with wonder right <laughs> wonderful <laughs> okay, well, we are almost completely out of time, so I wanted to just see at the end um, if you have any upcoming events or publications you'd like to announce. Let's see. Um, upcoming events. This is my dormant time, which means I'm on deep retreat in Hermitage. Um, so I'm about to go away again in December to continue working on a book. Um, and, uh, yes, there is a poem, uh, poem coming out in the next issue of Sentence, uh, a journal of prose poetics. Um, that Brian Clements edits and publishes, and um, and let's see, events won't happen until February. I'll be at uh, in the Bahamas at um, a place called the Shivananda Ashram to lead a yoga's muse retreat, and in March I'll be in Taos leading a tracking wonder retreat. Um, you can check oh, out trackingwonder.com. How tracking can you go to those places? <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. It has really been a pleasure talking with you, and um, I just feel like I learned so much, and I'm sure everybody else feels the same way. And I'll be looking forward to your upcoming blogs and books and publications. <laughs> thanks, Melissa. It was really a delight, and I really appreciate your inviting me to have this conversation. Oh, thank you. Have a great night. <laughs> thanks, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, well, I'd just like to thank those of you who are listening in tonight and those of you hearing the archived version as well. Our next interview will be with Floyd Sklute, recipient of three Pushcart Prizes, a Penn USA Literary Award, and numerous other awards for his poetry, nonfiction, and fiction. That interview will be at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on December 9th. As well, if you'd like to order print or digital back issues or subscription to Teferit, you can do so at our website, www.teferitjournal.com. A year subscription is $18 and includes six issues, two print and four digital. The website's also a great place for readers and listeners to post their own poetry since our editors feature one new poem each day from those who post. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. We hope you'll join us again in December.